good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. To the blood bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B&B movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the horror geek on YouTube or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stock the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fair, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. In today's episode, we're headed back to the 80s for one of the most beloved cult classics of the era, Night of the Comet. This 1984 release was a surprise hit, and it's gone on to be cited as one of the best B-movies of the decade. The road from the script to the screen with this one was not easy, with writer-director Tom Eberhard working with a minuscule budget and producers who didn't have much faith in his talents or the project by most accounts. And yet, somehow, Eberhard and the team rose to the occasion, overcame all of the challenges put in front of them, and created a bona fide cult classic in the process. Today, we'll talk about those challenges, why the film works, and the enduring legacy of Night of the Comet. <laughs> First, let's talk a bit about my own personal history with this cult classic flick. The 1980s were a really weird time in retrospect. It's no secret that I have a real fondness for the decade and that I'd gladly go back and live forever in them if that was possible, but it was also a really different world than the one we currently live in. We had a lot of weird fixations growing up in the era where technology was exploding, promising a future straight out of science fiction, and yet we all still lived in fear of getting nuked by the Russians at any given moment. It was a real mix of the mundane and the fantastical on some levels, and that was often reflected in our popular entertainment. One of the most interesting things from this era was our fascination with comets, which was undoubtedly spurred on some level by the return of Halley's Comet in 1986. Seeing Halley's Comet is a once-in-a-lifetime event for most people as it takes 76 years to orbit the sun, and 1986 was our most recent chance to see this thing firsthand. While the comet is a totally benign phenomena, writers have long been fascinated with horror scenarios involving these celestial bodies. 1968's Night of the Living Dead never states definitively what causes the dead to rise, but it does mention a passing comet at one point. Thundar the Barbarian, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon that was a weird mix of Conan, Sword and Sorcery, and Star Wars that debuted in 1980, finds Earth forever altered, and not in a good way, by a passing comet in 1999. Toby Hooper's 1985 film Life Force actually brings space vampires to Earth after Halley's Comet passes. Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive features the passing of a comet that makes all the machines on Earth self-aware and ready to kill their human overlords. So, as you can see, the idea of a comet bringing about the end of the Earth was a pretty popular idea. This would later be supplanted by asteroids. Anyway, I remember hearing about Night of the Comet in 1984. We saw a trailer for it before another movie I saw that year. Might have been Gremlins, but don't hold me to that. I'm an unreliable narrator when it comes to the exact details of stuff that I like. I was 11 years old that summer, and it was a time of great upheaval in my life. My father, who worked as a carpenter in a steel mill in Midland, PA, had lost his job a few years earlier during a series of layoffs. After running out of unemployment and not being able to find a new job, we were eventually forced to sell our house and move to Florida where one set of my grandparents lived year-round, and another one only spent part of the year here as snowbirds. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I hated Florida from the first friggin' visit. There were no seasons here, and it was just hotter than hell, and slightly less hotter than hell, basically. I begged my parents to not make me move here, to be allowed to live with my grandparents who didn't live here year-round so I could stay in school with my friends. Naturally, that didn't fly, and I wound up here anyway. 
Look, I know we're talking about comets, but believe me when I tell you, Florida is a black hole. <laughs> I've escaped numerous times, but the gravitational suck of this shithole state somehow pulls me back in every time. Tangent aside, we moved here and I hated it. My dad found work framing houses for a builder, and we lived in my part-time resident grandparents' house for a while since it was empty. My dad had work, but Florida carpenter jobs didn't pay like the steel mills did, so money was always tight. We went to our lousy beach a lot, because it was free, and occasionally made it to the movies. And that was where I saw a trailer for Night of the Comet. To be totally honest, I really wasn't sure what to make of it. I mean, 11-year-old me wasn't sold on the idea of two female leads, and I wasn't even sure this was a horror movie. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like sci-fi, but horror and action were really my true loves. It turns out it didn't matter anyway, because my parents were not chilling out movie theater ticket prices to see Night of the Comet whether I wanted to see it or not. But eventually, the film did hit video. And if you listen to some other episodes of my show, you know that my grandmother just basically turned me loose in the video store as a kid. As it turns out, she was not responsible for my first viewing a Night of the Comet, though. Instead, it was a friend who had parents who built a movie library by renting things and dubbing them onto blank tapes. At EP speed, no less, so he could fit more movies on one tape. I remember the tape in question had the Terminator on it, and then after that, it was Night of the Comet. So we watched Terminator, and then my friend fell asleep, but I stayed up for Night of the Comet and was immediately a fan. I don't remember what the third movie on that tape was, but it might have been Moving Violations, which was weird given that the first two films on the tape fit a theme. But these guys weren't really cinephiles building movie mixtapes, they were just fitting movies onto VHS. Regardless, sitting there that night in the dark watching Night of the Comet remains one of those indelible memories of my youth. The idea of putting Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney in the leads just made sense. And there was just enough horror to appease my burgeoning horror geek side, plus the whole thing just clicked with me. In fact, it clicked so much that I spent the next few months insisting all my friends rent it when we'd hang out. <laughs> I like to think I definitely helped this film make a few bucks over the years. Alright, now that we got another long-winded intro done and over with, let's talk about the film in detail. The film kicks things off with some voiceover narration about the impending approach of a comet towards Earth. Since before recorded time, it had swung through the universe in an elliptical orbit so large that its very existence remained a secret. It's interesting that this was made in 1984, two years before Halley's Comet would make a return pass by Earth. While Night of the Comet never mentions the name of the comet that basically wipes out humanity, it seems like the film was designed to tie into the fervor surrounding Halley Comet's visit in 1986. And if you're wondering, we'll next see that comet in 2061, so maybe we'll get a sequel by then. Kelly Maroney states that they actually enlisted Vincent Price to do the narration for the opening, but he was ill when it came time to record, so he had to be replaced. The film then jumps to some stock footage of what appears to be a New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square, but is supposed to be people excited about the comet. I only mention this because there's a quick shot of a guy in a Kango hat that people claim is LL Cool J. Look, I've been an LL fan since radio, and I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm like 95% sure that's not him. If you're watching this on the video version, have a look and see for yourself. From there, we jump to a movie theater where we meet the main character, Reggie, played by Catherine Mary Stewart. She's basically me when I worked in the theater. Busy playing video games instead of actually working. She's playing Tempest, I have Mortal Kombat 2, Off-Road, and Spy Hunter. We did the same basic thing when I worked for Blockbuster Video. We got the kiosks for the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn, and me and my buddy slash boss Chris would spend most of the afternoon playing Ridge Racer and Panzer Dragoon. Because it was dead, and it was better than sitting through the fourth round of The Lion King on the store's TVs. It's here that Regina first notices DMK in the number six spot on the theater lobby's Tempest arcade machine. This was supposed to just be a throwaway thing to show how competitive Regina was. 
However, Eberhardt explains that so many people on the production asked him who DMK was that he had to reveal him at the film's end. Another funny thing here that video game players always notice is the beating DMK score in the movie has her replacing him. In reality, she'd just get the spot and bump him down to number seven. Stuart playing Tempest is a bit of a funny unintentional joke as she'd also star in the video game theme The Last Starfighter that same year. Lance Guest was the arcade hero in that one, but it's still a pretty weird connection if you think about it. From there, we learn that Reggie and the Projectionist are an item. And the Projectionist is a very young Michael Bowen. Bowen is a fantastic character actor who most people remember for his portrayal of the villainous Uncle Jack in the last few seasons of Breaking Bad. And yet one of many of the film's tie-ins to the movie Valley Girl, Bowen was Tommy, Nick Cage's romantic rival, in that film. From that point, we jump over to meet the film's other star, Kelly Maroney, who's Reggie's sister, Samantha. Hello. Turns out her stepmother has thrown a comet party and finds time to belt Samantha in the face during an argument. You were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. Just yell pimp hand if you watch sick flicks. Since this was a low-budget film where multiple takes were a luxury, Maroney had actress Sharon Farrell slap her for real. Maroney and Stewart were both soap opera veterans, with Stewart having worked on Days of Our Lives and Maroney spending her time in the cast of Ryan's Hope. Both actresses cited their soap opera backgrounds as invaluable here. Having to crank out an hour of television every day on a soap set is a high-stress job for an actress. Both leading ladies were great at nailing things in as few takes as possible and improvising when things went wrong. I also like to think that being on a soap probably prepared Maroney for taking a real slap. For her character, cheerleader Valley Girl Samantha, Maroney was inspired by a classic film. She explains that director Tom Eberhard told her to watch My Man Godfrey for inspiration in building Samantha's character. Tom showed me the movie, um, or he told me to watch My Man Godfrey. Eberhard wanted Maroney to be herself, but to use that film as a sort of template of what he was looking for. Maroney says she modeled Samantha after Carol Lombard's performance as Irene Bullock in that film. So I took uh, as inspiration Carol Lombard in, in My Man Godfrey, who's the little sister who's highly dramatic. Anyway, back outside, the comet passes. And it's not looking good because everyone who wasn't in a metal building is now brick dust, which is what they actually use for the effect. But Reggie's still alive because she spent the night in the projection booth with her boyfriend. Unfortunately for him, he's not long for this movie because he opens the door to find a mutated comet zombie who kills him. Over the years, there's been a lot of debate about whether Night of the Comet is or isn't a zombie movie. Eberhardt puts the debate to bed by saying it isn't, but that like Die Hard, this one is a Christmas movie. Eberhardt said they set the movie at Christmas not because they needed it for the plot, but because of budget concerns. The film started shooting in late November, and they didn't have money or time to take down Christmas decorations and shots around the city, so it was easier to just incorporate them into the plot. Oddly though, you really don't see many of them in the finished film. Night of the Comet was originally titled Teenage Comet Zombies. I'm kind of stunned they didn't stick with this one, even though Eberhardt insists this isn't a zombie movie. Night of the Comet is pretty vague in comparison, plus it makes it easy to confuse this film with another 80s cult classic, Night of the Creeps. I do tend to agree with Eberhardt's take that it's not a zombie movie, though. While it does have a few weird zombie-esque monsters in the wake of the comet's passing, they're not on screen much, they don't operate like traditional zombies, and the real antagonists of the movie are actually the human scientists. The zombie cops and all that feel more like traditional B-movie throw-ins, if we're being honest. But Eberhardt does call the monsters zombies, but then goes on to add that he only added them at the last minute when he realized he was basically 30 pages into the script and hadn't shown any real threat for Regina and Sam to square off against. As Regina exits the theater the morning after the comet passes, there's a Death Race 2000 poster on the door. Mary Warnoff, who was in this film, was also in that movie. 
There are some really funny inside jokes with the theater posters in the early stages of this film. Not just Death Race 2000, but the projection booth has a poster for Red Dust, which is conveniently what everyone who saw the comet has turned into. There are a lot of little in-jokes in this movie, many courtesy of production designer John Mudo. Back in the movie, Reggie gets trapped outside the theater and realizes that an empty LA might mean something weird is going on. Stewart explains how they managed to shoot so much footage in a desolate-looking LA. Some of the scenes were shot literally on Christmas morning when no one would be out in the streets. For interiors, like the department store sequence, they had to film overnight when the stores were closed, taking a page out of Romero's Dawn of the Dead. This was really some guerrilla filmmaking as they didn't have money to actually pay for streets and locations to be cleared to get the shots they wanted and had to be more inventive in their approach. Eberhardt goes into more detail explaining that this early shot in the film outside the movie theater was actually shot at like 9am, but they coordinated Stewart's acting with the traffic lights to keep the street clear. That's pretty inventive. After getting trapped outside, things get worse as Reggie runs into the zombie who got her boyfriend. Uh, she's a way better fighter than he is and manages to escape on her motorcycle. Catherine Mary Stewart did a lot of her own stunts in Night of the Comet, but they had a stunt double for her motorcycle scenes and filmed her on the bike on the truck for close-ups. One really cool thing that makes this film feel more accomplished than so many of its low-budget apocalypse film brethren is the design. We've talked about how they managed to film in a way that made LA look empty, but the eerie red glow done in post adds another level to the film as a whole. Everything looks familiar, but slightly off. That the film looks so accomplished is really quite impressive. Eberhardt was the ultimate Hollywood greenhorn when he finished the script. He didn't have an agent or any real connections, but the script got circulated around Hollywood and generated interest. Orion Films considered the project, but eventually dropped out because they felt it would cost 11 or 12 million bucks to make, which was way more than they wanted to spend. Atlantic then stepped in, but wanted to just buy the script. Eberhardt had his heart set on directing, so Atlantic gave him the deal that they'd pay him half of what they were going to pay him for the script, and the other half was his director's salary. Same money, double the work. Uh, I feel like it worked out okay for him. The odds really were stacked against Eberhardt starting with the film's budget. He felt they'd likely get somewhere between one and two million dollars to work with, but when he met with the producers, they told him they wanted the movie to come in at $700,000. He says he's aware that lots of sites and other sources now claim he had two to three million to work with, but says that isn't accurate. Then he made the film for less than three quarter of a million bucks. I mean, I gotta be honest, it's amazing it came out as well as it did on that budget. And to up the challenge, Eberhardt basically had four weeks to shoot the film. No money, no time. I mean, it's really a testament to everyone involved's talent to get this thing made and have it turn out so well. Perhaps part of the reason for the smaller budget was that the producers weren't particularly fond of the script and weren't shy about saying so. Eberhardt explains that executive producer Wayne Crawford took him to dinner one night during production and explained that he didn't think the script was good and that he had no idea why Atlantic was spending money to make the movie. <laughs> Talk about a vote of confidence. But this wasn't the only time producers Crawford and Andrew Lane expressed their apparent disdain for the film and Eberhardt. Eberhardt himself acknowledges that the producers didn't really want to make the film, but did so because they were professionals. There have been rumblings that they wanted to fire Eberhardt during the production, but it never happened. The exact details haven't ever emerged to my knowledge, but it does appear Night of the Comet had some behind-the-scenes issues during production. For his part, Eberhardt is very kind when discussing the two men who seemingly had no faith in him or his film, citing them as vital to the success of Night of the Comet. I get the vibe that Eberhardt is just a really nice guy, and this is echoed by Maroney and Mary Catherine Stewart, who both say they looked at him as a father figure during filming. Tom was like our dad. There's a scene in our living room, and there's me as a little girl and Kathy's a little girl, and then there's the Green Beret guy. That's Tom. Naturally, with all of this dissension, there were going to be problems, and at least some of the issues on the production were attributable to the producers and Atlantic. 
Prior to filming, studio executives weren't sure if they wanted the more tongue-in-cheek sci-fi horror flick that Eberhard had written, or if they wanted it to be more of a straight horror effort. The comedic approach went out in the end, which feels like the right choice. Fortunately, it, it, the end product stuck closer to the original script, which was wonderful. I think he's a brilliant writer. Eberhard may have been new to writing and directing low-budget feature films when Night of the Comet went into production, but he was surrounded with an experienced crew. Much of the production team had worked previously on Alex Cox's classic Repo Man. Cox, for his part, doesn't seem to be much a fan of the film. His loss. Anyway, after some motorcycling, Reggie arrives home and reunites with Samantha, who in typical Valley Girl tradition is totally oblivious to what's going on. There's nobody! I mean, there's nobody! Alright, nobody. I'm sure. Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney both wanted the part of Regina. Maroney has stated that she asked to read for the part of Regina at one of her auditions, but was denied. It's interesting to think about Maroney as Regina, but in the end, I think the casting worked out perfectly. Stewart is great as Regina, and Maroney brings a real 80s teenage valley girl vibe to Samantha. In an interesting bit of trivia, Heather Langenkamp also auditioned for the role of Samantha, but lost out to Maroney. I suppose that worked out okay for her, though. She got to go fight Freddy Krueger instead. In a weird twist, Kelly Maroney auditioned to be Nancy in the Craven classic, but clearly lost the part. I feel like things worked out the way the universe wanted. Back in the movie, Reggie heads outside and shows Samantha that they're all alone, and that something terrible has happened. Now it's just the two of them in a post-apocalyptic L.A., basically. Everhart describes the genesis of the project by saying he was very inspired by the 1983 film Valley Girl and started the script with the idea of what would happen to some Valley Girls at the end of the world. There are multiple little Easter eggs to that film in Night of the Comet. For instance, in the radio station scene, Kelly Maroney actually holds the Valley Girl soundtrack, then tosses it over her shoulder. Beyond Valley Girl, Everhart also explains Night of the Comet was influenced greatly by Herman Rose's 1954 low-budget sci-fi flick, Target Earth. The film's opening, wherein Kathleen Crowley wakes up to an empty Los Angeles, was a huge inspiration for the early scene in this film when Regina wakes up after the comet has passed. Target Earth even provided clues on how to film in LA without paying to close off streets and other areas. That film shot on Saturday mornings to avoid having throngs of people and cars in shots. One of the really interesting things about this particular film, and what drew Stewart to the project in the first place, was that the main characters were both women and they drove the plot of the movie. Sure, Robert Beltran helps out in the end, but the ladies really steer the boat here, which was fairly unusual for a genre film back in the 1980s. Realizing that they're in a dire situation, the girls head for the local radio station, which is still on the air. Except, surprise, it's just automated. We got trouble, not us. That's the name of the song, and I'm Steve LeBeau, trapped inside your radio, the guy who really cares about you. I mean, who else? This always reminds me of that Simpsons episode with the DJ 3000. But they're not totally alone, because here's Robert Beltran. Sweetheart, you haven't seen those freaked out zombies running around here? Robert Beltran was highly coveted by the production for the strength of his work in eating Raul, but he turned the park down several times before agreeing to do it. When he landed the gig, Everhart envisioned Hector as a blue-collar Latino truck driver. Beltran was mostly fine with that, but worried about being typecast, so he insisted that he play Hector straight instead of as a more weirdly comedic as originally envisioned. Fortunately, Hector isn't here to hurt them, he's just as confused about things as they are. Which is sort of a nice break from the modern post-apocalyptic stuff where almost every human the heroes run across is some kind of monster. Yes, I'm looking at you, Walking Dead. Maroney spends almost the entirety of the film in this iconic cheerleader outfit. Director Tom Eberhard even tells a story wherein she auctioned off her cheerleader outfit from the film. He kept one, she kept one, and then she donated the proceeds to charity. While Reggie and Hector offer some character development, we get to see DJ Kelly Maroney in action. 
She even drops in the Teenage Comet Zombies title in dialogue. I'll be taking requests from all you Teenage Comet Zombies on the hit line. Turns out this is sort of fortuitous because by broadcasting herself to the world, she actually connects with some scientists who are in an underground bunker looking for survivors. Well, the question then becomes, are these guys friends or foes? And amongst those scientists is another Roger Corman film veteran, actress Mary Warrenov. From there, we get one of the film's most infamous scenes, a dream sequence wherein Samantha is pulled over by two gruesome zombie cops. The film's makeup artist, David Miller, was also responsible for Freddy Krueger's iconic makeup in A Nightmare on Elm Street. He also worked alongside Rick Baker on John Landis' video for Michael Jackson's mega-hit Thriller, so he was definitely ready to make zombies. Miller feels like his work on Thriller was what got him the job here. So after that, we went to uh, Night of the Comet, and that had a lot of zombies in it, and I think I got hired on that because I had the experience of working on Thriller. For his part, Miller only had six weeks to create all the makeup effects and prosthetics for the film. He did the majority of the work himself from his garage. Back in the actual movie, Samantha wakes up and goes to clean up, which gives the film an opportunity to show a little tasteful skin. But this is a dream too. It's like Inception up in here. Hector then takes off to see his family, and the girls get in a little weapons training with some MAC-10s. Funnily enough, these things jammed all the time, and Moroni basically improvises the line about the Uzis when it happens. See, this is the problem with these things. Daddy would have gotten us Uzis. Once again, proving all that soap opera training was incredibly valuable. While the girls are bonding over guns, Hector arrives to check on his mom. He doesn't find her, but he does find one of the many nods to Dawn of the Dead in this film when he's attacked by a zombie child. He doesn't ice the kid like Peter did in Dawn, so I guess there's that. Oh, and if you forgot about Mary Warnoff and the scientists, don't worry. We're finally going to find out what's going on with them. Basically, they got exposed to the comet and are sort of slowly mutating. Warnoff can't even spell the word memory. I've always liked this scene because it reminds me of a gender swap version of the scene in The Thing where Wilford Brimley realizes humanity is doomed according to computer simulations he's running. Anyway, the scientists aren't the good guys we might have thought. Since they've been exposed, they want to blood test survivors to see if they can figure out a way to save themselves, even if that method isn't exactly ethical. And guess what? You know where two girls are holed up. Speaking of the girls, Reggie and Sam are basically just having a moment. But before things get too heavy, they decide to solve their troubles with some retail therapy. The stars are open! <laughs> Damn, why not? Everything is basically free now. Night of the Comet is really a teen fantasy, which Eberhardt found out for himself firsthand. Before filming it, he pitched the movie to some 15-year-olds for ideas on what kids would do in this situation. He admits to being surprised that the kids didn't really show any fear over the idea of the end of the world or grief over lost adults, but were instead really into all the stuff they'd be able to do now that the adults were gone. Like go to the mall and hang out and miss school. I mean, I can't blame them. The department store sequence in the film was once again shot in the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which has turned up in countless movies over the years. Kelly Maroney would return here in several other films, when she was in Jim Wynorski's classic Chopping Mall and for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. The mall was a movie staple in the 80s and well into the 90s. In the intro, I talked a bit about how watching this movie in 2023 often makes me feel a little sad and bummed out. If you grew up in the 80s, the mall was like a Shangri-La place to hang out, blow money. It was a big social center in a teen's life. Being around in 2023 means you see more dead malls than open ones at this point, and that's really hard for me to reconcile. Seeing things like this movie and Chopping Mall and Mall Rats reminds me of how vital the mall experience was as a teen, and it's sort of sad today's teens will never really experience that for themselves. But hey, buying shit on Amazon on your phone is almost the same, right? 
And again, this is another little nod to Dawn of the Dead. When the dead walk the earth and all the living are gone, we all go shopping. It is interesting to note that used girls just want to have fun on the soundtrack here, but not the Cyndi Lauper version. I'm not sure why, just sort of interesting. I'm sure there was probably a reason, but I've never heard if it was just the cost or what. And of course they're not alone, because just like in Dawn of the Dead, this mall has a zombie shopper problem. This leads to an action shootout sequence where the girls, who have a military father, more than hold their own for a while. It's really cool to listen to Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney reminisce about this film because it's obvious they had a great time making it. The two have remained friends in the decades since the film's release. We had a lot of fun together. We became really, really good friends. We became like sisters on the show. The mall scenes here, like the ones in Dawn of the Dead, were shot at night after the mall had closed, meaning the production had to get their shots and clean up before the mall reopened for business the next day. The girls put up a good fight, but they're outnumbered and outgunned and eventually wind up captured. This is where your normal post-apocalyptic movie would probably take a pretty dark turn. But the scientist ex machinas are about to show up and save the day. And deliver another homage to Dawn of the Dead. This is the closest shopping arcade, but the whole area is an absolute monument to consumerism. The problem here is the scientists aren't exactly good guys either, and they split up Reggie and Sam. Reggie heads back to the lab, while Sam is left with Mary Warnoff to wait for Hector's return. Warnoff and Maroney share a scene at the mall, and it's one of the pivotal ones in Night of the Comet. In the original script, Samantha dies when Mary Warnoff gives her the injection, but Eberhard's wife and producer Wayne Crawford wanted her to live, and eventually convinced the director to bring her back later in the movie. For her part, Kelly Maroney says Mary Warnoff was very motherly towards her in their shared scene. She expected to be intimidated by the actress, but instead found her lovely to work with. Warnoff does give Samantha a shot, and while we think she's dead, she's really not. The same can't be said for a scientist buddy who takes one to the dome. Despite Eberhardt's reversal on the death of Samantha, Warnoff's character gets no such reprieve. She gets a very understated death scene with eating Raul co-star Robert Beltran. Warnoff wrote all of her own dialogue in her final scene in the film. But before she goes, she clues Beltran in on what's going on, so he can go rescue Reggie and the other experiments. They think they can generate a serum. A serum? We were exposed. Over at the base, Mary Catherine Stewart and the inimitable Jeffrey Lewis share a funny scene where he's taking her medical history. Are you pregnant? Nope. Thought I was once, though. That's not important. <laughs> That's what you think. That's the longest three weeks of my life. This is one of those little scenes that doesn't seem like much in the main story arc of the film, but it's fun to watch a legend like Lewis work, and Stewart holds her own here, even getting the best line. But he gets the coup de grace by telling Reggie what's happened to Samantha. Your sister's dead. The whole point of this lab is that the scientists are basically taking survivors, making them brain dead, and then draining them of their healthy blood for transfusions in the hope it will save them. They're so committed to this that they're even going to drain two kids. The boy here is actress Sharon Farrell's son. She was the stepmom earlier in the film. Now alerted that her sister is presumably dead, Reggie isn't going to stick around to see what happens to her and starts her escape. And she's even got a ride, because Hector is here. Oh, and he's got Samantha in the trunk. While he's setting up all the vehicles to explode, Reggie's trying to escape the lab. And she finds the two kids and Sam. After they reunite with Hector, they blow the lab. Literally, thanks to all the dynamite he planted earlier. Sam back from the dead, Eberhard had to improvise a bit on the ending. He couldn't end the movie with Reg and Hector and the kids they rescue from the facility together and Sam all by herself, so in a fit of serendipity, a strange dude shows up. The mysterious DMK from the Tempest arcade game at the start. 
Kill two birds with one ending. And with that, we roll credits on Night of the Comet. If you're surprised we never got a sequel to Night of the Comet, you're not alone. Everhart had plans for a sequel almost immediately after wrapping production on the film. He also had plans for a Night of the Comet TV series and cartoon. However, like so many other projects, none of this came to pass, mostly because there were rights issues. MGM is the apparent rights owner, and Maroney offered to buy the rights so they could make a sequel at one point, but MGM refused. I'd actually heard this story tangentially over the years and could never verify it. So I went straight to the source and asked Kelly Maroney directly, and she confirmed it with this statement. Yes, it's true. The rights to a lot of 80s films were all over the place, with someone owning the music and someone else owning something else, and they had to chase down people who owned other elements, etc. Then MGM picked up the movies. They went in and bought the rights to all the fragments they could find and tracked down the rest, and ultimately got the rights to everything back in order, creating quite a library. Only a studio could have done that. When we realized MGM could stream the movies, release the Blu-rays, etc., many of us tried to buy the rights to the films we made. But they quickly realized that if actors, producers, directors called inquiring about buying movie rights, they must have a former hit on their hands with potential. They gave most people I know, including myself, a firm no. But I prepared and consulted with a prominent attorney, and I was determined to get it back for Tom, Catherine, and myself. To my shock, MGM actually took my calls, but ultimately said they wanted to, quote, develop it themselves. Tom wrote me a letter of recommendation as part of my presentation. Needless to say, it's very meaningful to me. I still have it. The plan to develop it did gain momentum in 2018 when Roxanne Benjamin announced she was scripting a remake of the film. Benjamin was excited about the project, stating in an interview, I love the original and I love telling stories about girls facing impossible odds, like us against the world kind of stuff. And I think that's what's so cool about the first one is that it's this very real sister relationship where they're kind of dicks to each other, but really protective of each other at the same time. That's how siblings go. I love seeing that in a genre setting because I don't feel like we get those kinds of girl buddy movies that are facing down action and adventure as much. And so that's the kind of stuff I want to make. That was the core of the approach to this. As of 2023, the project still hasn't moved forward. Benjamin explains why, stating, quote, that's an interesting one. It's still alive, but just not really in the same iteration. But it's still kicking. So it's gone through a lot of different hands, I think, throughout the process, but it's still out there. She then adds, There's other stuff that's going on with it. That movie division, I think, is gone now, or I can't even remember. I think Orion Pictures. They stopped doing their own features, and they were just doing pickups at some point. So their original features division kind of stopped being active. That was a couple of years ago. The original script that I wrote was part of that group. So now it's in that weird limbo where that can never exist because it is in this entity that, I don't know, it's a bunch of business affairs stuff. Yeah, but I'm as confused as you are, Roxanne. At any rate, it's pretty hard to be optimistic after that update. And even if the film were to somehow get back on the production track, sounds like the system has turned it into something different than the original film. I can't shake the feeling we'd have been best served by Maroney getting the rights back because you don't have to read between the lines to see the proposed reboot was clearly moving away from what the original film was. And this is a huge bummer. But let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about the enduring legacy and aftermath of Night of the Comet's release. Night of the Comet might have only had a 700k budget and a four-week shooting schedule overseen by producers who were convinced they were going to kill their careers making the movie, but the film grossed an amazing $14.5 million at the box office. Night of the Comet released in November of 1984, landing in a number three box office spot in its first week of release. The film was up against some heavy hitters, including Missing in Action, The Terminator, Oh God You Devil, and the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. Everhart is surprised by how the film has endured and found a cult audience in the internet age. Catherine Mary Stewart says she had no clue the film had such a cult following until she started doing the convention circuit. The film wasn't just a hit with audiences. It received surprisingly positive reviews from outlets like the New York Times and the Hollywood Reporter. 
It's been popular with modern audience as well, pulling in a 79% positive rating from critics on aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes. In a strange twist, the audience reviews are actually lower than the critics' scores, but the film still pulls in a respectable 58% positive rating from viewers. Maroney, Stuart, and Eberhardt all went on to full-fledged film careers after Night of the Comet. It's a bigger deal than you might imagine. The 80s are filled with these low-budget B-movies featuring actors and directors who were never heard from again. Maroney went on to become a bona fide horror scream queen, turning up in Chopping Mall, the remake of Not of This Earth, about a bazillion TV shows, and the recently released Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolorama Part 2. She's still probably best known for her work here, but she's a fan favorite on social media and the convention circuit. She's really a lovely human being. Catherine Mary Stewart has had an equally impressive career in the wake of Night of the Comet. 1984 was a good year for her with roles here and in the aforementioned The Last Starfighter. She then turned up in cult comedy Weekend at Bernie's a few years after that. Then she was in the television adaptation of my pal Brian Keane's novel Ghoul, had a part in the devastatingly unsettling cinematic adaptation of Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, and turned up on Law & Order in 2023. Director Tom Eberhardt might not have had the faith of his producers, but that didn't derail his career after this film came out. In 1988, he helmed the Keanu Reeves film The Night Before. Then, in 1992, he was behind the camera for his best-known production, the Kurt Russell comedy Captain Ron. Beyond that, he got a writing credit on Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Star Robert Beltran had a rich and varied career after tackling the role of Hector. Seriously, his IMDb page is full of movies you know and love. He's probably best known for his 168-episode stint on Star Trek Voyager, which is one of several forays the actor has made into various Star Trek properties. And if you follow cult cinema at all, then you know Mary Warnoff added about a billion credits after appearing in Night of the Comet. From Ty West's House of the Devil, to Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects, to Steve Meyer's Warlock and beyond, Warnoff has kept busy in a wide range of genre efforts. Night of the Comet is clearly one of those rare B-movies that helped foster a lot of careers as opposed to killing them. If you haven't seen Night of the Comet already, I can't really recommend it enough. The film is available on Blu-ray in the US from our friends at Screen Factory and was released in Europe through Arrow Video. If you grew up in the 80s, this one is a straight nostalgia trip back to your youth. The mall, the valley girls, the music, it's like opening a time capsule to a better time. If you didn't grow up in the 80s, that sucks for you, but you can see what you missed out on here. But no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films that pair well with this one for your next movie marathon. If you love that whole 80s mall vibe, then you can't go wrong with Jim Wynorski's Chopping Mall. Chopping Mall feels like a perfect companion piece to Night of the Comet. It was filmed in the same mall, features Kelly Maroney and Mary Warnov, and adds Barbara Crampton and the inimitable Dick Miller to the mix, and it just captures that whole 80s mall rap vibe like this film does. If you want to make it a triple feature, grab a copy of the similarly titled and maybe even more entertaining Night of the Creeps. These two are a match made in B-movie heaven as both titles wear their classic 50s sci-fi and horror inspirations on their sleeves. Hey, come back and we'll wrap this thing up after another break to pay some bills. The 80s really were a wild time for B-movies, and Night of the Comet remains one of the best examples around. It's basically got all your B-movie tropes in one awesome flick. Aliens, the end of the world, zombies, cute girls. I mean, what more could you want? Watching this one nearly 40 years after its release is a lot like opening a time capsule to a better time. It's hard to imagine the Night of the Comet remake ever going into production at this point, and that's probably for the best. This is a film that's inextricably linked to its era. The Valley Girl stylings wouldn't work with the Zoomer generation, the fear of comets and the end of the world are very different now, and most importantly of all, malls are mostly gone at this point. I'm gonna be honest, I have to wonder why anyone would even want to attempt to remake this one in this day and age. It's pretty much perfect as it is, and a real love letter to the 80s. 
And if you know me at all, you know I'm a sucker for that. If you've somehow never caught this one, trust me when I tell you that you're missing out. I know the Comet is a bona fide cult classic and a prime example of the magic of B-movies. It's one of those cinematic labors of love where the cast and crew overcome all sorts of challenges and create something unforgettable in the process. If you want to pick up a copy, you'll find a link to purchase Night of the Comet in the description and show notes. So, what do you think of Night of the Comet? Have you seen this one before or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and sharing with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed.